This is the EWN Podcast Network. You are listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is Nikki Tate, author of one of her many books, Choosing to Live, Choosing to Die. Nikki, Nikki, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. How are you doing in all these times? Uh, they are crazy times, uh, but so far, so good. We're holding up okay here. Yeah, yeah, us too. You know, it's just trying to stay positive. Um, so one of the things that, oh, let's just jump right in, because this is a really, uh, this is a really um, important and uh, dear subject for me. Um, we've all had to uh, face this. I don't know if we've all had to. Certainly in our 50s, I should think that we've had to face maybe losing a parent or a friend or, you know, an acquaintance from the community, whatever, and how people um, deal with the topic of death. So I think one of the one of the things I wanted to ask you right off the bat is what was behind you writing this book, Choosing to Live, Choosing to Die? I think at the very core of it uh, was my experience dealing with my mother's passing. So my mom developed an early onset frontal lobe dementia when she was in her 50s. And it was awful, as you can imagine. But what made it all the more awful was that she had lived with a lifelong fear of someday developing dementia. And so over the years, she had said to me many, 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 many times, if I ever develop Alzheimer's, take me out back and shoot me. And of course, you know, she was quite, (laughs) she meant it, but of course it's completely impractical. I mean, you can't just take your mother out back and dispose of her. So it was, on the one hand, her sentiments were absolutely clear. She did not want to put her family through uh, nursing her. She was always very sharp, very intellectual, a champion Scrabble player. So her mind to her and her intelligence and her wit were who she was. And so she recognized that her sense of self and identity would quickly disappear should she ever suffer from a dementia. And she didn't want to continue that way. And she didn't want her family to have to nurse her through that. And at the time uh, when she fell ill, there was no capacity in the legal, legally in Canada to provide anyone with medical assistance in dying. So my interest in that subject goes way back to that horrible, horrible dark time of nursing my mother and struggling daily, knowing she wouldn't have wanted to be living the way she was living. And yet there was no option for easing her passing. And interestingly, that is still the case for dementia patients. There, Even though our laws have changed to allow under certain circumstances and with many precautions in place and so on, for certain people to um, take more control over their end-of-life decisions, and if they choose to have assistance in dying, it is available to some but it would not be available to someone with dementia because part of the, the or some of the safeguards that are in place include that right at the very moment, at the very end, you have to be of sound mind and able to make that decision. And of course, a dementia patient, by the time they are 
well advanced in their disease, they're no longer able to make that decision. And this is not a decision you can put in your um, advanced directive or assign this responsibility for making that choice on your behalf to someone else. That's not allowed under the current law. So this whole situation, this complicated, delicate, and messy, how do we deal with end-of-life decisions, has intrigued me for that long. And so as Canada moved towards changing their laws and, and moving forward with providing medical assistance and dying for some people, I was absolutely fascinated by how that would all play out, whether it would have helped us in our family situation or not. And that led me digging into the history of assistance and dying and so on. And out of all of that came this book. So I have my mom to thank, I guess, in a very roundabout way. Wow. And, you know, I mean, maybe, uh, well, uh, not maybe, we've all, I think, we've all thought that, you know, we all want to be in control. And certainly when we're in our 50s, um, you would like to think you still have that control. I mean, you know, I watched my mother who uh, died of sundowning dementia. It was horrible for her. And I, in my mother would have never, she would have been mortified if she had known what her final year would have looked like. And unfortunately, as we, you've just said, we, we don't get that say. And uh, I, I don't want that for my family to see. I don't want that for me. I mean, who, who would ever pick that? And uh, so it becomes really important now to talk about it when we can. But what are some of the shortfall? I'm sure you've done lots of research through this book. Um, so what would be in your, in a perfect world, okay, I'm going to wave a magic wand. Could you say, uh, if I could say in my will, if I live to be of unbelievable mind until I'm 93, and I'm going to have one small stroke, which is what happened to my mother, 93 years old, lived on her own, was, you know, it sounds very similar to your mom, very spry and independent and ate well and made good choices and all of that. And in one matter of one day, it changed her whole world. And she was very confused. And at that point, I couldn't and I wouldn't have said to her, you know, it's not going to get better, mom, from here on in. You know, do you want to, you know, take a, a shot of something or what? <laughs> I mean, you can't do that. And, and the problem is, I would have felt comfortable doing that because I knew so well what my mother wouldn't, wouldn't have wanted. But then you're going, now you're crossing into areas where you're getting to choose the end of someone else's life. And that just pops open a whole bunch of uh, different conversation, doesn't it? Well, it sure does. And I guess if the, only there were a magic wand. But the problem is you would need however many billion magic wands because each individual circumstances, it, it's different. No two people, and in fact, the same person at different stages in life will come up with a different answer. There is no one answer for everyone. So this is what made writing this book so very difficult and so very interesting, is because we had to take into consideration cultural expectations, religious upbringing and understanding, um, medical questions, uh, questions of, I think it's, so you bring up a good point. There is a, a shift that happens when we're no longer making the decision for ourselves. So if you are of sound mind, and for example, you are in your 90s, 
um, and you've been diagnosed with an incurable cancer and you know this is going to come along with a great deal of pain and suffering, uh, your, your spouse predeceased you, nobody is really going to stand in and, and, and prevent you from saying, okay, I've had a good full life. I'm ready to go. I don't want to deal with the pain and suffering that's headed my way. I'd like to take advantage of this assisted dying. It, very few people would have a problem with that. Right. But though there are who would have a problem with that. So in certain religious situations and so on, no matter what the circumstances, it's not appropriate. But for many of us, we can kind of wrap our head around that situation. But what do you do when you have an infant who is critically ill and is never going to recover? And someone else is going to make that decision for that child. What happens then? Then it begins to get murky. What happens if you have a mature minor, so a 17-year-old kid who's diagnosed with an incurable disease and is in a great deal of pain? The parents can't bear to let the child go, but the child proves by many discussions with psychologists and psychiatrists and so on, that they fully understand the implications of saying, yes, I've had enough. I would like assistance in dying. Who's, who gets to choose then? Is it the parent still responsible for the 17-year-old? Or does the 17-year-old have the right to decide? What happens when you've got a situation where uh, the pain and suffering is not physical, but it's severe psychological pain. So in the case of unremitting and um, uh, I won't say untreatable, but very resistant to treatment depression, where someone's everyday existence is so utterly miserable that they are suffering as much as anybody with a physical um, uh, illness, should they be allowed to have access or no? And you realize very quickly this becomes a quagmire. It's a complicated, complicated question that has, yeah, I wish there was a magic wand. I think a lot yeah. of people wish there was, but no, I, yeah. Well, because then what happens is, and for me, um, my son knows uh, without question that if I'm in, in uh, God forbid, in a hospital and I'm, not, and I'm not going to live to the way Helen is today, that he knows what my, my wishes were. Now, Having said that, so he knows what my wishes are, who am I to put that on to my son who may not want to let go of his mother? And you see, I know when my father, who was, he passed away at 59 of cancer, of everything, and the poor man, he was 65 pounds in his final days, and my mother wouldn't, um, and of course then, that was 30 years ago, they weren't, that wasn't even in the question. I know that they gave him extra morphine and just to keep them comfortable. But my mom didn't want to even um, think of the option that he was going to pass away. And I was watching this man lay there and suffer. And I, I thought at the time, oh my gosh. And in fact, one night the nurse came in and said, asked him if he, she wanted him to turn the lights off in the room. He thought the lights off, like the lights <laughs> off, Nikki. <laughs> right. He crossed, he did the cross and he's like, yes, please. And he put his hands together and it was so powerful for me. Mm. I was only 27 at the time and he didn't want to be there and he, there was nothing we could do about it. I don't know if I could have been, um, I say that now with maturity, if I would have been able to um, just say, let him go because who wants that burden? You know, it, it, like you say, it just opens up. It's, it's so not an easy 
um, an easy path either way for being the person that gets to decide to being the person who's lying there, even though, and how do I know at the final moment, I'd be like, oh no, hold on. Maybe I still want to hang on. You know what right. I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And people do hang on uh, for significant events. You hear this all the time. They wait until the grandchild is married or until the next birthday or one more Christmas. And, and this happens. And on the other side, that the family is the one holding the person back that they're just not quite ready to say goodbye. And so the dying person waits until they've been given permission to let go. So they may be more than ready to go, but hang in for the sake of family and the others to give them you know, a chance to say goodbye or whatever it is. So yes, it's, it's, um, it's a huge responsibility to hand to somebody else to, to, it's particularly considering that typically when these decisions are being made and talked about in our culture, when that tends to happen is in a moment of crisis. And that's the worst time for you to be making a decision on behalf of a loved one when your world is falling apart. Yeah. And so one of the things that came out of the writing of this book was the critical importance of having these conversations long before they are necessary and having them more than once and having them with more than one person so that you yourself become more self-aware and comfortable with your own wishes, but also letting all those around you understand where you are, what you want, what in case they need to speak on your behalf. Mm -hmm. And again, in, in a perfect world, um, you know, you could sit and say, if you have more than one child, and say to all three of them, this is my wishes. But each one of those children may have different emotional responses at the time of that, right? Absolutely. You yeah. can pretty much count on that, actually. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm betting. And, and, and unexpected reactions. You know, the people mm. you think might be the most um, open to, to an early demise, and you actually sit down and talk to them. It's no, do whatever you have to, you know, pull... <laughs> yeah. don't hold anything back you know do what you have to do to keep me going for so you make you can't make any assumptions uh, so that was something that really over the course of the book um completely shifted in my mind so my father currently is is in his 80s and until i began to work on this book we had never talked about anybody dying it was just an assumption he's going to go on forever you know as we all tend to think in this culture. We don't really think in practical terms about an end to life and what that might look like. And it was only after I was well into the researching of this book that we began to have proper conversations. And at first it was excruciating. I mean, it's, you feel terrible. I felt terrible bringing this up to my elderly father and, you know, and am I wishing that he were not a rat. You know, you begin to sort of second guess yourself. But as we had the conversations, it became easier and easier. And it was not just about him, but it was about me as well. And what I would do in, I mean, I'm in my late fifties now. So, you know, the end is not mm -hmm. any longer this theoretical thing that might happen 50 years from now. And so there began this dialogue and proper conversation about wishes, which led back to some very rich and wonderful conversations about life. 
and how we live today. And I think that was the most surprising thing to me of all about living with this subject so intensely. And it was over the course of probably two or three years that I was doing the reading and the research and the thinking about this subject in the course of writing the book was the shift from, so initially when I began my research, I was constantly being heartbroken. Yet another person was dying. I mean, I was reading a lot of articles and interviews and studies and information about death and horrible circumstances where other people are making decisions. And so my, my heart kept breaking day after day after day, coming to, to my desk and writing was agony. But at some point about a year into the project, that actually began to shift. And it became not so much about the end, but about the life we live up until that moment of, of death and how yeah. that changes our perception and our relationship to, to being alive, to drawing that next breath, to spending time with family, to the conversations that we have. And it wound up being a, a life-changing, actually it's not a small enough <laughs> way to put it. It fundamentally shifted the way I thought about everything. Yes. And you know, you bring a good point. So as you're speaking, and I'm writing these notes, um, as you're going along, and and of course, we talked about this before we recorded this. But one of the things that a couple of the words that you use that I love are, you know, rich conversations. And it is critical that we have those conversations with ourselves, too, because we've managed to uh, somehow our society doesn't like death, doesn't talk about it, yet we are all going to go through it in either our own or someone else's close to us. And it is really important to live the life that you want to live. And and in these times, um, I think that's becoming very clear about what's really important. And, and I don't think people actually ask themselves, what is important in your life? Now, having said that, I've had a very rich and interesting life right up until 58. I, I would like to have another 40 years of rich and interesting, right? But right. If, if something happened to me, God forbid, tomorrow, then what, you know, am I going to be exactly where I want to be standing in the universe? You know, probably not. I don't think most people are, want to end the journey but I don't know. But it's really important that you said that is that we've got to have these, we've got to start making death more, um, more part of our life. And we need to be able to talk about this with our adult children. And I mean, there's a lot of people that are running around that are, I don't know. I mean, it's up to every individual human being to decide how rich their life is. I think that's my new favorite word today is rich. <laughs> it's a good word. It is a good word. And it's yeah. ha- and you've got to talk about advanced planning. I, I don't know how many people don't have their wills or when they come in. Um, I used to work in a law office when they come in. I know when I went in uh, to do my own will, it was really uh, um, surreal to sit there and choose um, who I wanted to look after my estate. Well, that would be my son, of course. But wow, that's a big burden too. And then all of a sudden, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you don't even really want to think about that one day, you know, he's going to be having to take care of his mother's belongings and all of that. And of course, 
you know, we joke, he's like, well, I'm just going to back up the thrift store truck to your place after the service. And, <laughs> and I'm like, well, hold on. But you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, we, he's joking, I think. Um, but <laughs> those things don't matter. I know when I had to clean my own, my own parents house out um, after my mom passed, it was all of her life um, things, you know, that I had no real attachment to and but the things that I did attach to were really weird you know what I mean I do totally know what you mean I went through that with my mother and um it was very peculiar to go through all the things that she had so carefully collected and saved and looking at them and thinking well I know they meant something to her but they don't I have no attachment to these things and you're right too about that funny you know, what What I did hang on to, probably other people would find odd. <laughs> but, okay. you know, that, that. so I think, but I'm also going through the same thing at the moment as I have had a similar conversation with my adult daughter. So I'm a, I'm a writer. So no surprise that I have a quite an extensive library, even though I've... Oh, me too, Nikki. Right? Me too. So, what, and what are we going to do with these books? What are we going to do with these care. books? Yeah. They don't care. And my daughter's a reader, but she doesn't actually have the same tastes as I do at all. And so when I said to her, well, I'm going to leave you my books. And she said, please don't. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh. <laughs> well, but there's some that are really important. I know, right? I, right. I so. tell you this story. My mother for years had, okay, so when her aunt died, she had a little gift of these two Yorkshire Terriers looking over, uh, I guess it's supposed to be a tree stump, and, and it was a little tree. So when her Aunt Till passed away, my mom kept that on the top of her china cabinet, and I stared at it for uh, my whole life. And my mom passed away when I was 53, and I used to think, that is the ugliest thing. And <laughs> I thought, gosh. So when I'm cleaning my mom's house out, I literally am looking at this ridiculous thing and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't throw this out. So literally over the bin, no, over it. Guess what I'm <laughs> holding in my hand as we're doing this podcast? <laughs> it now holds all my pencils and I treasure it. Isn't that funny? It is funny. Yeah. So do you speak to that in your book about, you know, it's just stuff and we say it all the time. Ah, it's just stuff. But it's not just stuff. It's someone else's memories. Do you, that, do you speak to that in your book? Not specifically. What I do speak to is the importance of having these conversations, whatever they look like to you and your family and what's important to you and to your family. So in terms of, yes, having a will and an advanced life directive and so on, the specifics of it, not so much, because really the book is about um, medical assistance in dying and how one makes that choice and how as a society, we put appropriate protections in place so that this capacity to kill someone isn't abused. And there are examples, um, so euthanasia is uh, carried out under the Nazi re regime, for example. In extreme situations, that kind of power could be very dangerous. So what do we do as a society to take a step back and allow people the right to choose and have control over their final days, at the same time protecting the most vulnerable people in our society from abuse and misuse of that same 
ability, right? So the, the mm-hmm. act in itself is simply the act of ending a life, but it is the context that makes it so contentious. There's obviously a big difference between a premeditated homicide, mm-hmm. an accident, and assisting someone to pass peacefully at the end of their life. And mm-hmm. I was going to say, and I caught myself, at the end of their natural life. Because the other thing that came out in the research of the book is, what does that even mean anymore? So we now have all this medical technology that allows us to keep a body alive, mm-hmm. way beyond what the natural you know, passing cycle would look like. And just because we can keep someone alive, should we? That's another very interesting kind of medical, ethical dilemma that we have. Then we have the question of, all right, as a society, let's say we can extend everybody's final you know, ICU days by six months, because now we can keep your blood pumping, your heart pumping, everything, you know, your lungs working. You can be you know, conscious or not conscious, doesn't matter. So what is the cost, the financial cost to a medical system of keeping X number of thousands of people alive because we can, and this actually becomes in some situations a financial question. So we're, and that immediately gets everybody's back up. Like you should not put a price on a human life. And yet we do all the time. Mm-hmm. But now bringing this to the forefront and actually trying to put some legal framework around it brings that right up. You know, how do you make these really complicated, tricky decisions on all these different axes, the religious question, the uh, medical ethical question, the personal question, the how much pain should anybody be expected to survive question, the, yeah. you know, so the end result was this book that I set out to answer some questions for myself and wound up with a whole bunch more questions. I don't know that I answered any questions at all. Well, I have a good question, but first of all, we are going to take a break. You are listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is Nikki Tate, author of Choosing to Live, Choosing to Die. We'll be right back. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand, and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is author Nikki Tate, uh, who wrote this uh, great book on choosing to live, choosing to die. And it's about the complexities of assisted dying. I read it in one day. It's beautiful. It's, I love how it's, it's an easy read to Nikki because it's, it is such a deep subject and it covers a lot. 
Um, did you get, I, I want to get back to your point that you had made earlier, but I want to ask you a question. Have you gotten any kickback from this book in terms of criticisms? Interestingly, no, not yet. Now, I fully expect, I did expect there would be some and that it would be more, that it would have come quicker. At this point, the book has received excellent positive reviews. Um, yeah, I can't from- imagine you getting any kickback, to be honest, because you really do cover every, uh, I, I don't know if you cover every single one, but you seem to have done an enormous amount of research. And you, you do cover all of those subjects. You've been very respectful uh, in, in the subject. You, you, you didn't uh, come across as judgmental because I think that's what happens is, you know, we're judgy as human beings. I'm always saying that. And, uh, you know, that's where we need to back off and respect what the cultural differences are, what the emotional differences are. You know, uh, people, it uh, doesn't matter if you're 90 years old and this sweet old person, you might have been a complete, you know, bastard to your family, right? And right. so they've come back together and people have managed to, you know, mend some, some, um, some wounds. And, but those are really deep seated um, issues for people when they're saying goodbye, because if it's not finished business, you don't want to say goodbye. Absolutely. And uh, yes, I could not agree with you more. And and thank you for your comment about the book. Um, that was the challenge that we set out. And when I say we, I'm speaking of myself, my editor, Sarah Harvey, and uh, Orca Books, to look at the subject from all angles. And, and it's pretty much impossible to not have an opinion on the matter myself, but yeah. to not have that overwhelm the book, to allow the reader to decide, to pre- present all angles as much as possible. You're right, I can't possibly have covered every single possible eventuality, but as many as possible. And to to respect how people have come to their different ways of thinking about this moment at the end of life. You're never going to get 100% agreement. There is no one right answer. And that's okay. And what I wanted is, is for people to be able to read the book and and agree, it's okay that we don't all agree, that we'll mm-hmm. all come to that point in our families and with ourselves and so on. And it will be our own experience and to own that and to be comfortable with that, that that's the most important thing, that we're not left in a, in a state of crisis and unfinished business, as you say, or extreme conflict that could have been prevented if we had only taken some time to really consider what we, each of us, believes to be the most important and to share that information with those who need to know. Yeah. And therein lies the problem is we're all the same, but we're none of us are the same, right? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And so, I mean, the case that always comes to mind for me is the Terry Schiavo case, of course. Mm. I don't know if you researched that, but you know, what, what a horrible situation for that family. And, and it doesn't help. And certainly not now in these days with social media, it doesn't, it doesn't help that you've got the naysayers and the judgy ones hiding behind uh, a text or a post. You know, people don't make decisions like that easily. I, I like to believe it, it's a hard decision whether mom wanted it or not. You know what I mean? Exactly. So that poor family. I mean, if Terry Schiavo had not had what happened to her, 
she would have been absolutely devastated at that break in that family. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. And you're right about today's world. When you have a contentious case or one that gets, uh, the media gets wind of it, everybody knows about it. And because it's so easy to get online and throw your opinion out there, uh, everybody does. And that is so hard on a family or an individual where, you know, it, it's, it's a very private decision in many mm-hmm. ways. And yet, it, these, some of these cases, and there are a couple of cases in the book that became a media, a global media circus. And I cannot imagine what that did to the family, to grieving parents and so on, or even to the healthcare professionals who are in the midst of some of these decisions, trying to make good, sound, professional, medically ethical decisions when you have TV cameras in your face and you have tweets, you know, exploding around you. It's, it has not made things easier in in many ways. Well, and I think as a society too, we, we look at our medical um, teams to make those decisions as if they were robots. And I, uh, I can't even imagine some of these doctors and nurses, you know, uh, you know, a shout out to anyone that has to do that for a living and who wants, who chooses to do that for a living. And, and just to be kind, I don't understand why anyone feels they have the right to judge another uh, situation that they don't even know the innings, the ins and outs of it, for one thing. Right. So, um, right. so what are some of the, I guess the big thing I'm kind of hearing uh, is that we all have to have, at some point, we need to let go of what we think our, our notions are. We all have our theories on how things should happen unless, you know, until we've, we're standing in it in ourselves. So what has to happen to who is part of the conversations in a family, Nikki? When I think every, every, everyone needs to be part of the conversation in a family. I think it, it, other than perhaps very, very young children, yes. who obviously won't be able to step outside the situation and have any kind of context. But I think it's an ongoing conversation that changes over the course of a lifetime. It changes you know, based on circumstances and so on. So the family members need to be involved. Beyond the family members, though, I would suggest that the next circle, so your friends, the people who will be supporting the family during the time of crisis, so that next circle needs to be generally aware of the conversation. And I think it's for that reason that you're beginning to see things like death cafes, which are just gatherings of people interested in the subject of death, becoming more comfortable talking about the ins and outs and the pros and the cons and the various dimensions of this. Um, but who are not necessarily involved in the moment in, in a crisis situation. So just right. It's about bringing in an awareness and an bring, acceptance of the entire subject of death, isn't it? Exactly. And that really is then a cultural shift that needs to happen, in, certainly in our culture. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case everywhere in the world, but certainly here it is a problem that we just don't talk about this openly and frankly and allow ourselves to be vulnerable and not to have all the answers. That's okay. Mm-hmm. And then obviously the family physician, anybody who's involved with the care, uh, professional care of the person um, or, or family members or anybody in that circle also needs to be brought into the specifics of your thinking. They need to know about your religious preferences. If you want to have a death doula present, 
there are some practical arrangements that need to be made. Do you want to have a party in your palliative care ward? And what does that mean in terms of logistics? And are you allowed to bring in takeout food? To like, it can get right down to that kind of. Yeah, it's true though. I mean, you almost need an event planner in there too. Um, you know, I'm involved with the Palliative Care Society for the Bow Valley, and it's so it's so dear to my heart because um, I I deal a lot um, with my business in uh, dealing with grief, and and I don't I think now we're just starting to understand that grief is everywhere. It is part of your life. It does not mean death necessarily, um, but it death doulas. I have a, uh, there's a great gal in Calgary who is a death doula and her, she is just amazing uh, how she makes you feel comfortable about that whole notion of death. And, you know, we've, we've turned it into a punishment. You see it on movies all the time. You want to get rid of someone, you kill them, right? So it's a punishment right. to be dead. And so we've all become very afraid of it. But I see that a lot of uh, a new trend, and I think I might do this when I'm 80, I'm <laughs> going to have an unfuneral. And I love that. And I love that people now are able to write their own obituaries. You know, they don't always have to be so solemn and, you know. Exactly. I, and I think this is a really important and positive thing that can come out of this conversation. And exactly the same way as I kind of started there in the, oh my gosh, this is all about death when I began the book, that we work our way around to thinking about how do we celebrate a life and not necessarily waiting until the person has passed away. So we celebrate um, like an unfuneral or we have the a pre-wake, but while the person is still with us and you gather all your friends and family and anyone you want to say your kind of final goodbyes to, and you sing and you dance and you eat your favorite foods and you you have a grand old party. and It's true. And you know, I mean, I, I've been to, uh, you know, countless funerals where I think, gee, I wonder if the person's actually here. I wonder if they know how much love they have. Mm. Because, you know, the thing is, is when you die, you are elevated to sainthood, which is the only time you're ever going to be, right? <laughs> but right. it would be fun if you could have that, have that bit before you go, a, yeah, a recognition so you, and celebration of your life. And, yeah. you know, that it doesn't have to be, there obviously will be sadness yeah. associated with that. But I think as a society in general, we shy away from sadness. We protect ourselves from the darkness. But the fact is, you don't have light and joy and love without recognizing, I, I think they shine in all their glory the way they do when they're when you recognize that you could lose those things that matter most to us. Mm -hmm. And so the two are just flip sides of the same coin. And in the same way that we celebrate a new life coming into being, that's very much part of our culture. Why is it that we have so much trouble celebrating what is really just another transition? Nick, you just said something that was great. Now we're going to take another break and we're going to come back to that when we get back. You are listening to Sharing Stories with Ellen Rose. My guest today is Nikki Tate, author of the book, Choosing to Live, Choosing to Die. We will be right back. Calling all speakers. E-Women Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, 
or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help one million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is Nikki Tate, author of the book, Choosing to Live, Choosing to Die. Nikki, I think we could, we could talk for hours about this round and round, and I'm glad we're on the same page. I, I, I don't ever want to be a naysayer. I try to be open to all of the different ways. But let's talk about what some strategies uh, for the listener. What would be a good death? And I mean, you can't answer that for anyone that's listening, but that would be a good question to the listener. What does a good death look like for you? But um, more specifically, Nikki, what would be some good strategies on coming to terms with what a good death could look like? Well, first of all, recognize you have options. So we have allowed ourselves to hand the dying over to institutions. So most people in North America currently will die in an institution, either a long-term care or in a hospital. It has not always been that way. And there's no reason for it to continue to be that. What was interesting in the research actually was that most people would prefer to die at home, surrounded by their family. But most people do not die that way. And that's just because of our, our, the way our system has worked. The default now is to kind of take a step back and hand that whole dying thing over to the professionals. Mm-hmm. And I think step number one is to reclaim our connection with and our right to our how we die. So to learn, for example, it used to be the case that the family would wash and wrap and prepare the body for burial. We've totally removed ourselves from that. It's like, whoa, hands off, you know, you say goodbye and leave the room and somebody else just deals with all of that. So there are, is now a, a growing movement and understanding that that participation in death, the caring for the body, the saying a proper goodbye, the you know, is is a way of honoring the person and that it's nothing to be afraid of. Just because we have kind of distanced ourselves, it's become a foreign concept to most of us to become actually involved with that moment of death and, and what comes immediately after. And demystifying that, educate yourself, learn about, have a conversation about um what can come next? How can you participate and be part of the passing is, is a very practical, simple thing to do, which I think for many, and I'm not suggesting this is the right answer for everybody, is actually something we should consider not distancing ourselves physically from the process of dying in the way that we have. Secondly, as we were just talking uh, about, is to celebrate the life of a person while they're still with us and to part of that it all of this comes from a fundamental shift and an acceptance a deep core acceptance that we are all dying every one of us is going and that part of our problem and and all the trauma and the difficulty and the the trouble we have in talking about death and dying and the loss of and what we do next is that we're all in denial that it's going to happen. And I'm just as guilty of this as anybody else. 
And so step one is to deeply accept that you are dying, everybody you love is going to die, and that is not equal to an apocalyptic, oh no, awful punishment. It's not. This is part of life. We all have to go to make room for what comes next. That is the grand cycle of life. However you frame that, whatever you know, philosophical or religious you know, name you give that, that's the truth, right? We can't, if we all didn't die, this planet would be a mess. It wouldn't be uninhabitable, right? So this, this grand circle of life and death, somehow we have tried to extricate ourselves from that. And I think that's at the very root of why we have so much trouble coping with this transition moment. So just accept it as a transition. And how do you want that transition to be? And in my mind, the way I've kind of come around to thinking about this is it should be comfortable. It should be pain-free. So it should not be a physical agony to die. And it should be comfortable enough that you're able to share that passing, that you don't have to die alone. I think that is a big fear for people. And so that's a a two-part thing that we need to think about. One is that we have to then step forward and not be afraid of the person who was dying. And to be honest, I was in that camp when my mother was passing away. It was so hard for me to be in the room with her at the very end all I wanted to do was flee. And I think in part that was because I was so completely unprepared for for death. It was something theoretical that was going to happen to someone else, but not to me and certainly not to my mother. So all of I think talking about this, doing what you're doing, having this conversation with me, anybody who picks up the book and gives it a read, those are all concrete things we can do to start shifting our thinking. And when our thinking and emotional relationship with death changes slightly, then that opens up all kinds of possibilities for other ways to make the transition ourselves or to help those we love make the transition as comfortable and as loving and as supportive as we possibly can. Yeah. And, you know, there was, um, you know, I mean, I've had, uh, you know, many friends pass away over the years and some, and I can't think of one of them that didn't do it with grace. You know, one of my closest friends, she, she was done. And she, uh, I remember going in to see her and she just said, you know what, I'm done. And I'm like, that's okay. I, I mean, it was certainly not said in, in this tone of voice or even with this much control because it was very sad to lose one of my sister friends. But she she was done and she went on her own terms. And it was actually, um, uh, I think for her, it was a fairly reasonable uh, painless death. I mean, she had lots of, um, you know, drugs and stuff to keep her 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 um, comfortable but she was at peace with having to go and I think that's a big piece that people don't realize is it's that control bit you have right it's like when someone is ready to go they're ready to go and that's okay and you quite often hear people or wait like you said earlier people are waiting to hear permission to go and permission yeah. they want to see their loved ones one more time and it's um uh I I love that that that's for for me her death for me was I knew that I could have a peaceful death I will have one I hopefully um when it becomes my time 
And it does take a lot of the strain off, doesn't it? Yes, I think so. And and for all of that that you've just said, I have to commend the governments of the world that are at least removing that horrendous legal obstacle and mm-hmm. allowing people to have one addition, you know, a little bit more choice in the way that we we come to the end and one less stress to worry about. And I, I think it's overall an extremely positive shift in thinking um, that has not been easy for lawmakers who, you know, have tried to protect everyone, protect themselves, you know, to, to not, but to at the same time make this an accessible option for those who would like would like to take advantage of it. Well, and, and that's why it's called choosing to die. Exactly. It's not being, you know, I mean, and yes, the religious component comes into it. And, you know, we're not talking, I think, I don't know, but I don't know if a lot of people automatically think it's murder or they go to the worst case scenarios. They've got, you know, crazy relatives that want to get rid of them because there's a great deal of money intact or I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, who thinks like that? But there are people that think like that. You're right. And and it's for that reason that they, it's not easy. I mean, I think there is perhaps in some minds the misconception that it's it's now become too easy. It's not easy at all. There's a no. very long list of boxes one needs to tick before you're allowed to go ahead with it. Um, Do you oh, think it'll ever, just for your, I don't know if you know the answer to this, and if you don't, that's fine, but um, do you think it will come to the point where if I said to my son, listen, if I'm 90 and I don't recognize you, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Can I do a recording that says, here, I'm telling you right now, I don't know my mom, I don't know my son, I don't know my grandchildren, I don't even really know where I'm at. I, can you just let me go? Um, do you think it'll come to that? Or who knows? I, I don't know if it will. I hope it does. I really me hope too. it does. Uh, for the sake of the families, anybody who's ever lost someone to dementia and who has had those theoretical conversations, as I had with my mother many times, um, and you know that's not how they would like to go. Um, I hope that we figure out a way to extend this this option to those families as well. And again, as long as there are appropriate you know checks and balances in place, I. I would like to think that that will someday be possible. Yeah. Uh, so we have been talking about this already for almost an hour and uh, an hour. And so um, I, I think we could go for a long, long time, Nikki, but w- we can't. <laughs> well, I could. I'm sure I know you could. But yes. I, I want to thank you for, for sharing this. I think it's really important. And, and it's kind of bad timing to talk about it during this whole COVID stuff that's going on but it is and it isn't right I think um well I was going to say it isn't bad timing because suddenly every single one of us I mean we don't know who will be who will contract the virus a but then who's going to be hit hard by it because that seems to be utterly unpredictable so what better time to sit down and say you know in the worst case scenario we haven't never talked about and then, you know, ask these questions, have this conversation. How, you know, would you like your passing yeah. to be? Now, COVID is a bit of a weird one because, in fact, you're not going to have the option, probably, of right. coming home because True. of the contagion. But that's something, too. If there's something you need to say to somebody, 
say it now. Don't wait. You know, have the conversations. Don't be afraid. And I, I think that, so if there ever was a good time to be talking about this sort of thing, I do think it's now. So yeah, okay, that's well said because you know I didn't want to bring it into the whole factor because it's bigger than just uh, the pandemic that's going on right now. I mean, this is life, and you know, in the next twenty or thirty years, we're going to lose a lot of baby boomers. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's coming, and so I think it is critical timing actually. And yeah, yeah, you're right. It is time to sit down and and have that really hard conversation. And I think the first the first things out of the families you know, kind of code of conduct is to say, this is a really hard conversation. It's okay if you're afraid or, you know, just be open to it and and find out what works. Yes. Because, right? Because some of us, I mean, I know for me, I haven't seen my, my kids in five weeks, uh, mainly because I was away and now I'm back and I'm, I'm isol- self-isolating. But uh, you know, there's a possibility I might not see my kids ever again. You know, I hate to be, you know, kind of go down that road, but I think it's really important to phone your loved ones or FaceTime or whatever works now and tell them how much you love them. You know, is like, that's super important for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. I could not agree more. So yes, I thank you for bringing it up and yeah, everybody yeah. get out there and, and make those phone calls and talk to people on, about, I mean, what actually matters more <laughs> in some ways, well, right? right? Isn't it just been shown what really matters? Right. What really matters? Okay, well, maybe my mother's little bit here, pen holder with the little two dogs there, a matter. <laughs> but they don't really. And... um yeah, I think that's that is such a good point. We we have been given this time in our lives for some reason, this big reset from the universe. If you want to go down that path, uh, and so maybe it is exactly the time to phone. So as soon as you finish, anyone is listening to this podcast, text, phone, Facebook your family and tell them you love them. You know, um, because that is super important. And then tell them what you want your wishes are. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Nikki, thank you so much. I can't wait until this whole thing is over and we get to sit down and have a coffee. I, I really enjoyed this podcast, even the subject. So thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me and, and uh, giving us this time to talk about this subject. Thank you for listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. To learn more about Helen's journaling retreats, speaking engagements, and life coaching, or to sign up for her newsletter, please visit HelenRose.ca. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.